Welcome to the Think Neuro podcast, where we talk with doctors at Pacific Neuroscience Institute who are treating the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. I'm your host, Anthony Effinger. When people think about multiple sclerosis, they don't often think about the eye. But vision problems can be the first signs of MS. The disease is caused by an aberrant immune response that attacks the central nervous system, and that includes the brain, the spinal cord, and the optic nerve. The optic nerve is where MS often reveals itself. Dr. Barbara Geiser specializes in the treatment of MS patients. She turns to her colleague, neuro-ophthalmologist Dr. Howard Krauss, for confirmation of early suspected MS diagnosis. Using a powerful imaging technology called optical coherence tomography, Krauss can see changes in the optic nerve long before an MRI scan would pick up evidence of MS in nerves elsewhere in the body. Monitoring the optic nerve after a diagnosis gives valuable clues as to whether MS treatments are working. Listen to this discussion to learn more about how this unlikely partnership is changing lives and how when it comes to MS, the eye is a window onto the body. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you, Anthony. So where should we start? Well, <clears throat> since I'm a man of vision, uh, I can, I can uh, do the kickoff. Fantastic. Um, but as uh, we've noted before, 40% uh, of our brain is involved with vision, both the visual perception and processing of visual images, acting upon what we see, uh, and the regions of the brain that then control and coordinate eye movement. And recognizing that MS is primarily a, a brain disease, uh, it's not surprising then that some MS patients will have visual symptoms. And in some cases, the visual symptom uh, comes to be the first sign of uh, MS. So um, I'm here to, today to note that Dr. Geiser and I have a uh, wonderful collaboration here at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on at PNI is our multidisciplinary effort. So we make it easy for patients to come to one center and see all of the specialists and have all of the tests done that they need, uh, rather than to be going from building to building and, and time to time. Uh, so I'm here to uh, assist Dr. Geiser uh, in our MS uh, program. When I saw that we were going to be talking to both of you together, I was wondering what the connection was because I knew your backgrounds. But now I see it's vision is often where we see the MS appear first. And it's, it has massive effects on the on the vision system. So tell me what are the signs you see that indicate MS in, in the vision system? So visual complaints, as uh, Dr. Krauss said, are common in people with MS. And about 20% of the time, the very first symptom that somebody has that turns out to be MS is a uh, fairly sudden uh, loss of vision, usually in one eye, uh, usually with some pain. And this is called optic neuritis, or an inflammation of the optic nerve. If we go back a little bit, we remember that MS is caused by the immune system attacking nerves in the central nervous system. The central nervous system includes the brain, the spinal cord, and the optic nerve. So it's not surprising that visual complaints are going to be pretty common. 
So when we see somebody with optic neuritis, um, we can test a couple of things. We can look at what their visual acuity is. We can look at their pupillary responses. We can look in the back of the eye. Sometimes we can see the damage and sometimes we can't. But what's very useful is to have uh, then be able to refer them to Dr. Krauss because he can do a very special test called OCT. Okay, and OCT is? Uh, it stands for Optical Coherence Tomography and it was really a breakthrough uh, invention in ophthalmology as far back as 20 years ago, although the technology has been refined. So with optical coherence tomography, we're able to see in great detail the lining of the back of the eye. We're able to see specifically as it relates to MS, what's called the retinal nerve fiber layer. Uh, each optic nerve has about 1.2 million individual fibers in it, which then enter the eye and course over the surface of the eye. Uh, and with OCT, we're able to measure the thickness of that retinal nerve fiber layer to detect swelling uh, in the case of acute inflammation and moreover to detect atrophy or loss of nerve substances. And we can also measure the thickness of what's called the retinal ganglion cell layer where the cell bodies of the optic nerve lie on the surface of the retina. And we're able to see very small changes. You know, we marvel at the technology of uh, MRI, but if we think of uh, the ability to discern things on MRI, we're talking about changes of plus or minus a half millimeter, which is pretty small. Uh, in microns, that would be 500 microns. But when we measure things at the back of the eye by OCT, we're measuring things at 100 times that resolution at plus or minus five microns, which is the width of a red blood cell. So we're able to see much finer, smaller changes in OCT than we can in MRI. And in the management of the MS patient, uh, the MRI is important, but we're also learning more and more that monitoring the OCT tells us a lot about the health of the optic nerve and a lot about the health of white matter in general. What is tomography? Uh, tomography is, uh, is, a, is a term that relates to looking at things in slices. So in OCT or optical coherence tomography, we're able to look at different layers of the retina. The retina at the back of the eye is analogous to the film of a camera. In and of itself, it has the consistency of saran wrap and its overall thickness is about a third of a millimeter. But it has layers. Uh, and the innermost layer of the retina is the retinal ganglion cell layer and the retinal nerve fiber layer, which relates directly to MS and the damage done by MS. Tell us about the difference between white matter and gray matter. I think most people know gray matter and they think of your brain. but MS is a disease that affects white matter. Let's talk about what that is and why it's different. So um, most nerves um, have covered with a thick, fatty, white insulating material called myelin. Myelin's important because just like an electrical cable, the insulation helps the nerve conduct electrical impulses more quickly, more efficiently. In MS, the myelin is the first thing to be attacked. And so you've got, uh, for all intents and purposes, a frayed nerve. The nerve is not conduct conducting electricity. So if a muscle doesn't get the appropriate uh, electrical impulse, the muscle's gonna be weak. If you have a sensory end organ that doesn't get the appropriate electrical impulse, you might have numbness 
or you might have crosstalk and then you get like abnormal sensations. And in the case of the visual symptoms, if the visual pathways are not able to conduct the appropriate electrical impulses, you get loss of vision. There are other visual centers in the brain that control the ways the eyes move. And so if those nerve pathways are disrupted, you get double vision or bouncing vision mm. or the inability to focus. Um, so there's lots of visual symptoms that can present in people with MS. The very cool thing about OCT is that, as Dr. Krauss was saying, it can help us track nerve damage that doesn't produce any symptoms and that you can't see on an MRI or an exam. And so uh, we could uh, use OCT, for example, in addition to following the patient or following their MRI, we could also track serial OCTs and see if they're responding to medication. Serial meaning when you keep doing them. Period. And you just watch for changes. So it gives you a clue to the overall, their overall health. Well, it gives you a clue to the, to the health of those pathways. It, it gives you a clue to the, the health of nerve pathways that may reflect other functions. So, for example, OCT, of course, is telling us about the visual pathways, but because it's conserved, concerned with the nerves uh, in, in uh, certain parts of the brain, uh, there are studies that show that it actually reflects function of other neural pathways, such as cognition. There are studies that have shown that um, OCT can help correlate with cognitive function which is another thing that at, uh, MS can affect. So it's a very useful tool. And from the standpoint of the patient, it's a great test. It takes about 15 minutes. It's completely mm. painless and non-invasive. How do you do it? Do you, is it one of these things where you put your face in the thing, like at the uh, eye doctor's office, and they... Exactly. That's it? And it's very simple, and it's uh, painless, and simply requires uh, looking at a uh, crosshair in the machine, and then uh, very quickly the machine scans the retina and produces the result for us. One of the marvels of this technology and many technologies in general is you learn as you go along. Uh, OCT was principally investigated as a better means of uh, evaluating the retina in the analysis of retinal disease. Uh, but as we go along, we learn of its other applications. Uh, and in medicine, we have science and we have dogma. Dogma are the things that are written in textbooks that are carried down from generation to generation. <laughs> and I love over time how we disprove dogma. Uh, when I lecture to medical students and residents, I often say to them, 50% of what you will learn in training will be later proven to be wrong. Mm. And it's your obligation to discern what is true, but also to always question mm. so that we can discard the falsehoods and, and learn new pathways. So it was through OCT that we actually learned that things that occur in the brain are indeed reflected in the retina. Uh, the old dogma was if something happened posterior to that first connection at the lateral geniculate. Wait, hold on, let's stop there. So let's define our terms for me. Back of, right. posterior to... The first connection of the optic nerve at the lateral geniculate. So if we think of vision, uh, we don't see with our eyes, we see with our brain. Eyes are the, the cameras or the detectors, and the signal is conveyed into the brain through the optic nerve, which then makes a connection at the middle of the base of the brain in a structure called the lateral geniculate. And then there are other nerves that bring that visual information through the brain to the back of the brain to the occipital cortex where we see. So it used to be said that if something happens in the brain, we don't see any evidence of that when we look inside the eye. 
But about 10 years ago, it was discovered as we had the technology to look at the retinal ganglion cell layer, which are the cell bodies of the optic nerve, that someone could have a stroke in the brain, someone could have other damage in the brain, and then we see atrophy of the retinal ganglion cell layer. So that old dogma that something that happens in the brain is not seen in the eye was only because we didn't have the technology mm. to look fine enough at the eye. So we've learned that, as Dr. Geiser noted, that OCT tells us many things about the brain uh, that we didn't know that it had the potential to, to tell us. How long have we had it? Is it about 10 years? Is that what? Well, um, it's been refined over time. So I think the invention and application of OCT to uh, looking at the retina is about 20 years old. Okay. Uh, but that's like saying uh, MRI is uh, 20 or 30 years old. You know, today's MRI mm. is not the MRI of 20 or 30 years ago, and today's OCT. Uh, you know, is continuing to be refined. Um, so it's just always elevating to have a new technology and to be able to learn from the use of that technology things that we didn't know before. Fantastic. What happens when a patient comes in? Tell me about the kind of person who you would um, do an OCT test with and what happens as, you know, the, di the, the results go one way or the other. Um, so, uh, again, when somebody comes in with a, a visual complaint in optic neuritis, uh, usually we can see some uh, manifestations of that on exam, but again, it would be very... Like? So, um, again, optic neuritis most commonly produces a loss of vision. It, it's almost always in one eye, occasionally mm. can be both eyes. So you would first check the person's visual acuity with an eye chart, how well can they see? Um, you can uh, look at their pupils, sometimes their abnormal pupillary responses. Um, I can look at the back of the eye, which is called the fundus, with an ophthalmoscope, and you can see the head of the optic nerve. Sometimes you might see changes, sometimes not. So I can see some things on exam, but I can't get the, the discrimination that Dr. Krauss can with an OCT with sophisticated visual field techniques. So that's why it's really uh, so helpful to be able to say, go downstairs and, and see if Dr. Krauss can mm -hmm. see you and, and do an OCT. Um, um, and you have that, you have the, the um, machinery on, you have the on-site? Yes. Okay. The, the uh, as we said, the, the other uh, reasons why um, I might have somebody see Dr. Krauss is they're not having an acute attack of optic neuritis, but we know they have MS. And again, we know that MS can produce damage to visual pathways that may not produce symptoms. So we would have them see Dr. Krauss so he can get sort of a baseline evaluation of how well their visual uh, pathways are functioning, do a baseline OCT, and then we could track this over time. Um, some of the other symptoms that people with MS might have come, uh, as we said, not from damage to the optic nerve, but from damage to centers in the brain that control the nerves that affect eye movement. So people might have double vision or bouncing vision, and I would refer them to Dr. Krauss for um, any therapeutic um, interventions he might be able to do. So Dr. Geiser and I have fallen into a pattern where if uh, Dr. Geiser has an MS patient, uh, we'll evaluate that patient, even in the absence of symptoms, on average once a year, uh, measure the best corrected visual acuity, uh, look at the pupillary reactions, uh, do what's called visual field testing to test the peripheral vision because sometimes optic nerve and brain problems will show up with a peripheral vision problem, not a central vision problem. Do the OCT test. 
uh, take some photographs of the retina, and then also look very carefully at the eye movements. Because even without a complaint of double vision, we'll sometimes see abnormalities in the eye movements. So we'll look at the alignment of the eyes, we'll look at the speed of movement of the eyes, the, the smoothness of the pursuit movements. Uh, MS will often affect the cerebellum, which is a center of coordination, which can cause the eye movements to be a little bit jerky or irregular. Mm. It can affect the brainstem, where eye movements are initiated and controlled. So one of the hallmarks of an eye movement abnormality in MS is what's called internuclear ophthalmoplegia. And that's a miscoordination of eye movement where the signal gets to one part of the brain that, hey, we're going to look to the right, but it gets to the left eye slower than it gets to the right eye. So the eyes may be in alignment uh, in a steady state mm. of gaze, and there may be no double vision, but when the MS patient then looks to the side, one eye lags behind the other eye, isn't necessarily perceived as double vision, but is perceived as imbalance or a visual problem. So we can look at the regularity or irregularity of the eye movements and really do a full assessment of all of the visual components of the nervous system as they may relate to MS. That's fascinating. Those are, those are such subtle clues um, to this disease. And now a message from our sponsor. The Think Neuro podcast is brought to you by Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org/foundation. How so when a patient comes to you um, how often how often is do you see a patient who doesn't suspect that they have MS or is not you know it's never even come onto their radar but they have an issue with vision and that becomes the thing that says I that be, you have MS. Um, so somebody with a purely visual complaint is more likely to see Dr. Krause before they see me, uh, and then Dr. Krause would probably very astutely order an MRI of the brain. And if that shows um, scarring consistent with MS, that's probably when I'd be called in. Okay, so I was wondering what the order of operations was there, and I can imagine it really it really goes both ways. It really goes in both directions. Um, You know, there was a a hallmark study that was initiated in the late 1980s called the Optic Neuritis Treatment Trial, uh, where about 500 individuals with first attack of optic neuritis were randomized into three treatment groups, high-dose intravenous cortisone, oral cortisone, and, and no treatment. Cortisone, it's a stero- it's steroid? Yes. Okay. And the idea there is to knock down the immune attack, inflammation? Right. Okay. And we learned many more things from this study following over 15 years plus than we thought we would. Uh, so we learned, for example, that the best treatment, if it's going to be treated, is high-dose intravenous cortisone uh, for a few days, that in fact, patients who were treated initially just with oral prednisone uh, were found to have a higher rate of recurrence of optic neuritis, and the patients who weren't treated at all um, got better as well. So one of the interesting things about that is at one year after the attack of optic neuritis, all three treatment groups had the same level of vision. But the other thing that was discovered, because all of these patients were followed with MRI, is that uh, if an individual had one bright spot in the white matter on their MRI, 
when they presented with optic neuritis. Wait, a bright spot meaning? An area of nerve damage. Got it. So even with one bright spot, one abnormality on the MRI, which was clinically silent, no other symptom of MS, that half the time that individual would go on to develop clinically diagnosable uh, MS. And furthermore, those patients who had completely normal MRIs, 10% of the time, would still go on to develop MS. And overall, those patients who presented just with optic neuritis um, over a 15-year period, 70% uh, of the time would go on to develop MS. So optic neuritis in and of itself is a harbinger of MS in a, in a large number of cases. So through a clinical controlled prospective trial, we learned more about the disease and we learned more about the treatment of the disease. Now comes along greater technology and greater knowledge, and we have a finer diagnosis of other things that can produce optic neuritis other than MS. There's also a more rare neurologic condition called neuromyelitis optica and some other uh, unusual uh, autoimmune conditions called anti-MOG and mm. anti-GFAP. And when those other conditions cause optic neuritis, the concern is that in the absence of treatment with cortisone, that some of the other demyelinating autoimmune diseases have a higher risk of causing permanent damage to the vision. So whereas the optic neuritis treatment trial told us that their visual recovery was no different whether or not you treated, hmm. especially in something like neuromyelitis optica, we've discovered that if you don't treat, that individuals at higher risk of permanent damage. So the standard of care in optic neuritis nowadays has shifted to trying to treat everybody with at least a few days of high-dose intravenous cortisone until we figure out what their underlying diagnosis is. On the off is. chance that they've got or this rare condition that calls for treatment. But the good news is that even though optic neuritis is uh, very much associated with autoimmune demyelinating disease, that Dr. Geyser is here to figure it out uh, <laughs> and, to, uh, and, to, and to treat uh, all of those patients. So we think about whether or not to use cortisone but there are many other uh, very uh, effective, helpful uh, drugs uh, in the matter. Yeah, let's talk about those. So, so we, we have to think about treating acute episodes, and an attack of optic neuritis is acute episode. And as Dr. Krauss said, we would normally give several days of high-dose intravenous corticosteroid. If that doesn't work, sometimes there are some second-line treatments we can do. We do a procedure called plasmapheresis, which is literally washing the blood. So we extract blood from people, we wash out the antibodies, the kind of bad humors, and then we give them back the blood, and that works sometimes. How much blood are we talking about there? You do a plasma exchange. You, you take out um, a certain volume of blood. It goes through the machine. The, the soluble uh, part of it, which is where all the antibodies and the, the um, pathogenic proteins are, gets washed out, and then you return back the patient's white cells and, and red blood cells. Uh, plasmapheresis is used for um, a number of autoimmune conditions, but we use it as a second-line treatment when people have not responded to steroids. Do you do that once, or is that a... You do it uh, over a course of several days. You give several treatments over a course of and then three is five the, days. And then you see how the patient does and... Right, exactly. Whether or not you need to do it again sometime in the future? Um, well, it, it's an acute treatment, so okay. we have to differentiate between treating an acute attack and... and um, 
maintenance, what we call disease-modifying mm. therapies, and those are a different class of drugs. So again, if we get back to what's the problem here, mm. the problem is um, in MS and in these other diseases that can cause optic neuritis, Dr. Krauss was mentioning, neuromyelitis optica and anti-MOG syndrome, you have an immune attack on nerves in the brain and the optic nerve and the visual pathways. So you want to give um, chronic sustained therapy to kind of beat back the immune system and stop it from attacking the nerves. And for MS, we now have almost two dozen FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies that can do this. And in the case of NMO, over the past year or so, we actually have uh, two FDA-approved therapies that are specific for neuromyelitis optica. So um, I think the other thing we were talking about technology and how we can do all these great things, we can get finer resolution with less invasive tests, and the, the sea change in the field of MS and, and other autoimmune conditions is over the past 25 to 30 years, we've had the um, development of these disease-modifying therapies that actually abrogate the natural history of the disease. Um, when, when I started working in the field of MS, which is longer than I care to comment on, <laughs> when, when we saw people um, who had optic neuritis, we, we couldn't even do MRI. We suspected that they had MS. And we would say, well, we think you, we could do a spinal tap, and sometimes that was helpful. And we would say, well, you have MS, and I can give you some corticosteroids for this attack, and um, take it easy, <laughs> and let me know if you need any physical therapy. And now... Because we have these remarkable technologies, because we have MRI, because we have OCT, because we have new diagnostic criteria that help us diagnose, and we even have blood tests for things like NMO and anti-MOG, which we don't the have. The two rarer MS. conditions, yeah. right, right. You can pick up the antibodies in the blood. And now we can diagnose people early. We can say, look, this is what you have. These are your choices for treatment. And we also, of course, know the importance of combining a healthy lifestyle to work with our, our um, pharmacologic strategies. So there's no cure for MS, you know, globally here, but there's lots of treatment for the episodes that happen when one has MS. We, the treatments, we, we have treatment for the acute episode, but yeah. we have disease-modifying therapies that help prevent the likelihood of more attacks and future damage. Right, okay. So that's got to be wonderful. It, it was a sea change. Because when I was growing up, you know, we knew folks with MS and it was like, well, you know, good luck. Yeah, that, that's really the take-home message of anything we're going to say about MS. It's a treatable and controllable condition. So for you, that must be, and for your patients, this must be um, a new world. MS is a scary thing, and I think we now have the ability to make it a lot less scary. When you have, when an MS patient has um, um, neuritis in the in the optic nerve, is it, what what can their what's their expectation? Are they is this going to be one of these where it's, it comes on, you you tamp it down, it comes on again. If you get it once and you're likely to have it again, what's the what do you tell them about their expectations? Well, one of the scary things about MS is uh, every young person has an image in their mind of being blind or being disabled or wheelchair bound. And nowadays that really is a minority of uh, MS patients. So I think that uh, even in the long run, 90% of people who have an attack of optic neuritis, which could be very severe, they could have almost no vision in the heat of the attack. Mm. But 90% of, uh, of patients with MS maintain 
good vision throughout their life. 90% of patients. Uh, and uh, it's a small percentage that uh, become uh, disabled and dependent. What number would you say that may be? Um, I, I, I couldn't give you an exact number, but it's certainly much, much less than, right. than when before we had the disease so, modifying so, therapies. Mm, part, part of being a physician is, is doing your best to harness the technology, make the diagnosis, and deliver the appropriate care to the patient. But uh, just as important a part of being physician is uh, taking care of the anxiety and, and the fear of the patient. And having all of these tools that Dr. Geyser notes makes us more optimistic. Mm. Uh, and, and we're eager to share that optimism uh, with MS patients that uh, will help you with this and uh, will we'll give you the therapy that you need and will modify the therapy that you need. But uh, the outcomes are much better today than they had been decades ago. Mm -hmm. Sure. What, Please. what I find myself telling people who are newly diagnosed is there's never a good time to have MS, but if you have to have it, now is the best time there ever was. And so our current therapies are really pretty good at stopping damage and preventing future attacks. The next great frontier in MS is going to be repairing the damage that's already done. And we're not there yet, but there are a lot of things going on in preclinical trials and animal models. There mm. are a few trials in humans showing that this is possible. And so that's going to be the next great leap. So I don't know, but in, in now I can say to people, we can control this disease. And what I'm hoping is that maybe in 10 or 20 years, we're going to say, we're going to control this disease and we're going to reverse it. Repair this damage to the myelin. You said that, uh, you talked about how in MS, the um, immune system attacks the myelin. Does it attack other things or is it solely that? So so the initial attack is, is on the myelin, but the the nerve wire, what's called the axon, which is what the myelin wraps around, can be damaged as well. And so um, initially you, you have uh, degradation of the myelin and over time you have uh, damage and, and dissolution of the axon as well. Mm. And that's when you get more permanent damage. And that manifests itself obviously in... So that's when, when people tend to have less recovery from attacks and they have more progressive deficit. That's why we want to get in early. When we get in early with these um, disease-modifying therapies, we not only try to preserve the myelin, we try to preserve the myelin-forming cells. Those are called oligodendrocytes. And so we want to get in to save those oligos and preserve that myelin and protect that axon. So the oligos are... The myelin-forming cells. They're making... They're making myelin. Okay. And so you and and you you can preserve the, the, you can preserve the factory then. Well, that that's part of it. You're you're trying to preserve existing myelin, and you're trying to preserve the cells that make myelin. Because we we know that um, uh, especially early on in MS, the brain has innate repair capacity. So if you damage myelin, the brain will jump in and try to repair it. But over time, if you lose those myelin forming cells, you have less capacity for repair. Oh, sure. Yeah. Our restorative, our reparative strategies, are are they're sort of a twofold uh, strategy. You want to try to promote the innate repair capacity of the brain, and then you might want to bring in exogenous things that will also affect repair. Exogenous, like, I mean, there are lots of things that people are trying right fantastic. now. Fantastic. So this is, I mean, this is really a. We've come so far. I mean, I feel like the last time we talked about MS, it's changed in in a year. 
I I don't know that it's changed <laughs> it, but well, you know, we we learn new things every day, as Dr. Krauss said. Um, but but the point is that, with, as with many many neurologic diseases, it kind of takes a village. Um, mm. Certainly, neurologists can't do it by themselves. So, it's it's really a gift to be able to have the close collaboration with neuroophthalmology. Did you ever think, say, you know, ten years ago or fifteen years ago, that you'd be collaborating this way? I mean. Well, you know, many of us have always sought collaboration, but uh, we were at universities and other institutions where the distances and the layers of bureaucracy were, were too difficult to, to make it an efficient, pleasant experience uh, for patients. Uh, and really the thesis of the formation of Pacific Neuroscience Institute is to bring all of the neurodisciplines together in a close geographically close and, uh, and collaborative uh, relationship uh, to make it easy for patients to, to see all of those specialists who can coordinate and participate in their care. The other thing we learn, uh, which is very exciting, is that by working closely together, we come up with uh, new ideas and new opportunities for clinical trials and, and research that can create better therapies uh, going forward. Sure. You know, corporate America is right now, everybody's at home working at home and people are, are worried that, you know, you don't get the meeting on the stairway where, you know, two employees who work in different parts of the company get together and suddenly you have an idea. You must have lots of sort of stairway inspiration here. I mean, this three-story building, you're all in here. I mean, you can't discount the value of those random meetings, right? I mean, how often are you just sort of kicking things around and then something comes of it? You know, it's, it's every day. Uh, I see something interesting or exciting on the first floor, <clears throat> and I can call Dr. Geyser on the second floor or Dr. Kelly or any of our other colleagues and say, uh, can you please come down here? <laughs> uh, and uh, it's better for the patient. It's more exciting for us, and uh, it leads to uh, better uh, insight and better clinical trial development. What, so tell me how you organize the first. What's on the first floor? First floor is uh, ear, nose, and throat, okay. uh, neuro-ophthalmology, uh, and a brand new infusion center we have. Many of the therapies that we can administer to patients today, including therapies for MS and uh, neuro-oncologic diseases and, and other autoimmune diseases are administered intravenously and need to be done uh, slowly over time with nursing supervision. So mm. we're able to do that here on site uh, rather than to have to send someone off-site to an infusion center. And then the second floor is uh, neurology and uh, neurosurgery. And then close by, uh, two blocks from here, uh, we have our brain health center where Alzheimer's patients and Parkinson's patients uh, are evaluated and treated. So everything is uh, near and at hand. So there is, there's, there is something to this um, meeting in the stairway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think it's a fascinating notion. And I do think it's something that gets lost when people aren't in the same building. I agree. Right? You know, I think that kind of collaboration. Collaboration is you can foster it, but a lot of it's just luck of the draw. That Yeah, we learn a lot from one another. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that's really great for the patients is a kind of one-stop shopping. 
concept. So again, um, and Dr. Krauss and I shared a patient a couple months ago. It was a young man who had a first attack of optic neuritis. Dr. Krauss saw him and gave me a yell upstairs and said, come down and see this gentleman. And I did. And I was able to review his MRI. And I was able to say, you know, we've put together your MRI and your clinical presentation. We think you have MS. And so that day wow. I was able to sort of start him on a therapeutic course. Dr. Krauss was talking about our brain health center. We're just developing. We've um, uh, starting a uh, on-site physical therapy rehabilitation program. That's going to be really exciting because many of our patients with MS need physical therapy. So they can come here to PNI and get neuro-focused, neuro-expertise rehab, which is a really exciting concept. And we're hoping to extend this to other areas of rehab as well. So um, we, we really do envision PNI as, as kind of a place that can meet many, many neurologic and neurosurgical needs. So this young man came in with a an eye complaint and in one and so he saw you and then he also that very same day saw you and and found and and you determined the diagnosis of ms and and we were able to start him on his therapeutic regimen so that that's what it's all about yeah yeah well and how long have you been how long have you been going here now you know it's interesting uh i've known of dr geyser for quite some while uh because many of my ms patients would say, hey, I found this great uh, neurologist, uh, Dr. Geyser. Uh, and uh, so I knew of Dr. Geyser's reputation long before uh, we met and started working together. But and, they hired me anyway. And, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was personally exciting for me uh, when Dr. Uh, Geyser joined us uh, recently. Uh, so How long has it been? A year and a half. That's it. Right. Fantastic. And, and I certainly knew of Dr. Krauss before I came here. But if you look at PNI in general, uh, we're young. Yeah, you are. Uh, you know, many of our doctors have known each other for decades, but in terms of putting together the PNI as a collaborative uh, institution, uh, it started in 2017. We modified and occupied this building, our first center, in 2018. And uh, in the space of a few years, we've grown from four physicians to 34 physicians. And over the next year and a half, we're recruiting another 17 more. All, 17 more. All neurospecialists in psychiatry, neurology, neuroophthalmology, neurosurgery, interventional neuroradiology. So, so we have the good fortune of uh, being recognized as a valuable resource for the community. Uh, and being supported to uh, to grow very rapidly. It's very where are you going to put all these people? I mean, this is it's not a huge building. It's, it's big, but we... <laughs> well, just as OCT allows us to see things that are very small, we've discovered how to shrink things down. So, <laughs> so everybody is here in this one single 10,000-square-foot building. Now, um, we have a, uh, a wonderful collaborative relationship with Providence Healthcare, which has 10 hospitals in L.A. and Orange County, and terrific support from the St. John's Health Center Foundation and other foundations. So we refer to what's called the power of partnership, where we've got the physician leadership, the hospital leadership, the foundation leadership, and it's really providing the fuel for us to expand in more clinics and more centers throughout uh, LA and Orange County. Yeah, so that, yeah, it doesn't all have to. It's, it's not all in this one building. Yeah, nobody's gonna be standing at uh, counters with their laptops or. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is delightful. I'm so glad to catch up with you. And I think uh, maybe in a year we'll do it again and learn great more about, about the progress. 
Thank, Thank you. you. Dr. Geiser, Dr. Kress, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Think Neuro podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. For more about Pacific Neuroscience Institute, please visit pacificneuro.org.